Hey, Toby. No, you can't have any of my White Castle hamburgers, so please don't even ask. Yeah, can I have a fry? Okay, but just a couple, Harvey. I'm not going to be eating dinner until very late, and this has got to hold me over. Yeah, what do you got, church function? No, I'm driving to Toledo to see a movie. Would you like to come? Well, nah, you know, I gotta, I gotta go to Delaware tonight. I'm getting married. Oh, yeah. why Delaware? Well, you know, the chick I'm marrying is uh, from Wilmington. You know, plus I gotta help her move her stuff back here. Why are you driving to Toledo to see a movie, Tom? It's not playing at the Maple Town. Okay. I didn't know you had a girlfriend hired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We met last week. Oh. What movie could possibly be worth driving 260 miles round trip for? It's a new film called Revenge of the Nerds. It's about a group of nerd college students who are being picked on all the time by the jocks. So they decide to take revenge. Uh, so what you're saying is you identify with those nerds. Yes, I consider myself a nerd. And this movie has uplifted me. There's this one scene where a nerd grabs the microphone during a pep rally and announces that he is a nerd and that he is proud of it and stands up for the rights of other nerds. Right on. Then he asks all the kids at the pep rally who think they are nerds to come forward. <coughs> so nearly everyone in the place does. That's the way the movie ends. Uh, so the nerds won, huh? Yes. All right. Wow. Well, you know, you got this movie and I'm getting hitched. We both had a good month, huh? Right. Yeah. Ugh. Harvey. 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 What? Yeah? How long are you going to be in Delaware? Because I'd really like to see this movie with you. Yeah. I don't know, man. You know, I'm going to be gone like a week. But then, you know, I'm going to have a wife, so... You know, so I'm going to have to bring her along, too. Is it, uh, is it a girl flick? Depends on the girl. What kind of girl is your new bride? Is she a nerd? I don't know, man. Maybe, yeah. She's into herbal tea. Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And for our second film in this trilogy, we're going to talk American Splendor. I would have to doubt that the most people listening to this have never heard of American Splendor. Do you like? Did it even get a theatrical release? Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, it, it's it's mean, a it's an HBO film. Yeah, it, I I remember seeing it at the uh, the only um, the only art house theater we've had for any extended period of time. We did at one point have a competitor that. I personally thought it was better because it had more screens, and uh, so I got more art house, uh, more bang for my buck. Uh, but yeah, this one I, I have a theatrical experience with it. Web, this oh. is, you know what the theme of this month is? Where was Web? Where yeah. was Web for these selected, yep. <laughs> selected films? <laughs> I I am genuinely uh, upset at myself because uh, by the time I found, oh god, you want to know how I found American Splendor? <laughs> I was all about 
sideways when I saw uh, when I first saw it. Okay, and Just because I, I, yeah, I immediately identified with Miles, and I loved That's Paul not Giamatti. So good. <laughs> I, <laughs> you're right. At the time, it absolutely was not good. Um, and and it's been a while since I have uh, seen Sideways, so I, I'm I'm gonna have to put that on the uh, uh, in my queue. And I was so in love with Miles and so in love with Paul Giamatti's performance. I'm like, I, I think I'm all about Paul Giamatti now. So I was all about Paul Giamatti, and I saw what else he had done, and American Splendor popped up, and I was like, all right, sure, whatever, put on American Splendor, and I watched it, and I was just so happy. Uh, I I loved it, and I I think you can kind of understand, those of you who've seen Sideways and American Splendor, that Miles and Harvey Pekar kind of cut from the same cloth. Like, the the, the characters, um, and well, I guess in in Harvey Pekar's case, the person, very similar. And so, Paul Giamatti... Where are you going with this? What what level of loserdom are we talking about here, <laughs> no, no, uh, uh, but it wasn't hard for me to relate to Harvey Pekar as as well as well as Miles, well, and so you it became a very you don't personal. Seem as angry as either one, though, to me. Exactly, and I was worried about this rewatch because when I <laughs> recommended this trilogy, this is a film that immediately popped in my head because I had been dying to talk about it, but I haven't really revisited it since I was uh, first fell in love with it. And so I was like, I'm not that guy anymore. Granted, I will still think about some of the bad times and those negative emotions, you know. Uh, as you remember, all that was brought up with, with the mixtapes that we talked about. <laughs> and those, those, Is it those negative going to be the, the middle film? Is that going to be the Empire Strikes Back moment for Web? <laughs> to the, the darkness, <laughs> the dark personal trauma. Maybe. Um, Okay, let me let me throw some positivity your way. Yeah, uh, a pretty uh, good, I guess, barometer for uh, success. I guess at least in my personal life, is when my wife uh, sits and watches the whole film and is like, "I like that. I wouldn't have watched that if it wasn't for your stupid podcast." And I'm like, <laughs> well, we're here at your service, ma'am. What do you want me to say? American Splendor was one of those those films because she. She has certainly never heard of it. I, yeah, I'm not going to play the hipster card and say that I was really aware of Harvey Pekar before this. Like my discovery is through the cinematic character, uh, which you know this this film plays with that, like much like the comic book that it's it's based on, where you get Harvey Pekar drawn in different ways, perceived in different ways. Um, so yeah, I would, I think that really the only comics that I read after this probably start with like our movie year um and then some you know some of the stuff they really pushed at that point to tie in with the uh i want to say the success because this was a successful film but you know it's also box office of eight million dollars so not <laughs> it's not like it was my big fat greek wedding or anything no um but i think within our circles you know this was something that you know around 2003 uh that fall um i don't think it got nominated for anything which is really a shame for paul giamatti to not get a lead uh nomination for this i agree or even like a script nomination i thought the script was incredibly clever that's the only thing it got nominated for was an uh best adapted screenplay so there you go good okay well i'm glad but when i did watch it this time around as i mentioned i was worried 
that I wasn't going to be able to relate to it, that, you know, Angry Web is is no longer really, you know, it's it really more of a myth at this point. I'm imagining Web coming out in his Paul Giamatti wrestling character mode, trying to hide himself <laughs> up to get back into that, yeah. that headspace. But I, I would think it would be easier here than, say, like something like Sideways, which is very specific to that character. Like... One of the things I love about Picard is that a lot of things that will just, like, ruin his day are, like, really simple grievances, yeah. annoyances, because that's where I tend to lend, you know, my, my life doesn't have, thankfully, like, these big swings of, like, conflict. It's just the daily grind of, like, like tonight. You know, I was looking forward to recording with you, like, another another tit album coming up for the for the masses um, much like American Splendor, actually much less than American Splendor, but still <laughs> relatively on that level. Um, but I did have the offhanded remark to my wife in a you know complaining way, where I was like, "God, tomorrow's just Wednesday." Like, so I'm taking a day of the week, and I'm like, "You're just Wednesday." Like, can we just move past this already? Uh, so yeah, very Picar esque. Um, yeah. Do you think people who don't have any history with them, like you know? I don't know if you've introduced this to other people, but I, I could imagine some people not wanting to hang out with such a misanthrope for two hours. As funny as he is, but I mean, he's, he doesn't have much of an arc. He has a little bit of one when it comes to uh, this parental relationship and his marriage. Yeah, that was arc. great. Yes. But the real man who's still in the film still seems like the same dude, which I, I applaud. <laughs> he's, he's held yeah. on to that. He's not getting soft around the edges. You know, he's still he's still the, the uh, what, Cleveland badass that, that he always was. Still the but wrestling yeah, you know, persona that Webb wants to be. I think the great thing about this film is that he's not getting soft. I think we're getting soft for him. Mm. Like, yeah. we're... That's a good point. We're... It's the friend who's like, oh, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. That's what happens with Harvey Picard. Like you, be, you become very enamored with him and his troubles and the way that you're right. Like the littlest things will ruin his day because that is so relatable. And you become uh, his friend. And he, by the time, you know, the, oh god, what a wonderful scene where he's given the clear that he know, you know, the cancer is in remission and everything. Like, what a—that's the moment when I realized I was like, we're the ones who are uh, uh, changing ourselves to accommodate Harvey in our lives because that's just the kind of person he is. He's—you're right—he is hard to be around. <laughs> But I feel like it's rewarding, and and that's what I got out of this viewing, and I'm this so thrilled. Point, and I hate to. Oh yeah, no please. With, please. with a memory, like a high school memory. No, no, no. I, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> I don't. I wish I um I knew the story. I'm sure it's like you know it's nothing too out there for like a public you know Kentucky public high school education. I don't think they were going for <laughs> something that had fallen into the recesses. Um. But there was some story that we were reading or discussing in this English class, and it was about an old man, a father, uh, whose son uh, was embarrassed of. He was like a kind of a gruff, like farmer type, like country. Like I don't know if he had much education. I don't remember the the, the plot, but there's something about where the kid has to like stay after school, or uh, somehow, as much as the kid is embarrassed by the the thought, his father meets this teacher that he admires in some way. And they they have some sort of bond that the the kid 
does not get because he sees his father as uh, a hick, uneducated, an embarrassment. He's trying to get away from that. He doesn't want to be identified with his father, and he doesn't understand what this educated, respected man like how could they have a conversation for, you know, 30, 40 minutes? Like what would these two men talk about when one is so superior to the other? And I'm probably, probably butchering that, but she went round and round asking like, well, you know, which person changed here? Cause much like American Splendor is saying like they, the two men are the same. Like, you know, this kid doesn't figure out why, like where did they meet in the middle? It doesn't appear that they did. So how could they connect? And she kept asking and you know, people, kept throwing out their theories like well and it was actually very pre-film twitter where it's like you just tell they're just bullshitting they're like (laughs) what's really happening here and there's like we're only dealing with three characters (laughs) there's only three three options and you all have really pulled as much out of your ass as this this poor high school english teacher could could accept and she's like you know no it's you'll still are not you know getting it what who had the arc who changed here and i was like sitting there like not participating as I usually did. And I was like, well, probably we did. And I just said, like, I set the third out there and she goes, that's it. Exactly. That's it. That's what I've been looking for the whole time. And I was so ashamed, Webb, because I just threw that out there. And like, oh, fuck, I don't know. Probably us. <laughs> and suddenly I'm in the spotlight as far as like, he gets it. Now this, he saw through all, I'm like, oh no, I did not. I did not. I saw nothing. <laughs> Davis, yeah, and as a um, the the airport in Paris, trying to reconnect the McAllisters. And yes, that's right. I felt so dumb. Let me let me just fix the glitch. As far as I was no uh, literary scholar, you know, if people have listened to months of tit and believe that, or heard my high school English story, such as my feeble mind that I just watched American Splendor two weeks prior, and I'm like, where's that fucking face? Where, where do I recognize <laughs> this person? <laughs> <laughs> but she has a little bit of a get up here. She's got a a, a style, you know, a yeah. mood that she's she's doing here. She also should have gotten some acclaim along with Giamatti. You know, both I these agree. performances should have been nominated. Well, granted, there is like a de- over a decade between the two films, so I I, I don't I don't fault you for for. I'm gonna say it's the wig, the wig and the glasses. You know, she's <laughs> it's this uh, sexy French, not flight attendant, but airport worker who's now yeah, in disguise. Yeah. Like Jason Borders. is <laughs> <laughs> the no, wife of Harvey Picar. It speaks to the performance. It, it really does. And it's kind of like the, the way, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Every film, he looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman, but every film, he is somebody completely different. And, and it, it's just, it, that's pure acting talent. And so good on Hope Davis for uh, her work here. I hadn't thought of that. Your Philip Seymour Hoffman thing. Does he get more, uh, even more claim that a ginger was able to be a chameleon mm. with the, the, the striking oh, red hair? Or, or, 
are we saying that he's even better than than what people have said? He's already seen as like the best of his generation, and now Webb's like, and he had to do it with red fucking hair too. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> God, I, like, I just remember I, I watched Mission Impossible three specifically because he just for him was in it. For yeah, yeah, I just wanted to hear him. You know the the you have a wife, you have a girlfriend. I'm gonna find her. I'm gonna hurt her, and I was just like, "Oh, he's so good. He's so menacing. He's and, and he he didn't change his appearance at all. He's just it's him, but he's somebody completely different. Somebody who I've never seen. And so, yeah, yeah. Let's let's bring one aspect of the film into the conversation here: the breaking of the fourth wall. It happens quite often, and not only do you get to see Hope Davis as um, Harvey P. Carr's wife, Joyce. But you get to see Hope Davis, you get to see Paul Giamatti, you get to see... Uh, uh, and the wonderful moment where, if you're not familiar with the character, like uh, Judah Freelander is like, wow, he's really like... that. That's quite a character he's putting on. And then you see Toby Randolph... Uh, Radloff, excuse me. And he's just doing this spot. I was like, oh my god, that that's a real person. What did you think of being introduced to the real life counterparts of these characters? I think it's it walks that line of um it could be annoying. It could it could grey on your nerves, it could be a little too cute. Um I think it fits the, the structure of this film because like the meet cute between uh, the you know, soon to be P cars here. And I, I do mean soon. Like the <laughs> the way they decide maybe they should just be married is just very practical <laughs> very much a lot, so. of, a lot of romance um but when they first meet she is imagining trying to get an idea of what he will look like because he's been drawn so many different ways i think she says like he's there's one artist that draws him with uh with stink lines like yeah to get the odor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh other times he's what like a young brando uh which She's really shooting her shot there. That she's gonna, you know, get this uh, depressed uh, comic book writer, and he's gonna look like Marlon Brando pre about probably what three or four hundred pounds. But I, I didn't mind it because of that. Because it's like, you know, the book itself is like how people perceive Harvey P. Carr. So it kind of lets you in on like, okay, this is what. The actors, this is what Paul Giamatti is working with. This is what he's sort of basing on, and, and it's the lens of the, the actor's eyes, how he sort of takes little bits from it, and what he decides to emphasize to an audience for uh, a film adaptation of this man's life. I thought that was interesting. There was another film that came out a couple of years ago called American Animals, I think. It was actually a film set in Lexington, Kentucky, so where I live, about a crime here. And this is not a spoiler or anything, but they, they use a similar-ish structure where, since it's a true crime story, they actually interview the participants of that crime in between cutting to the, the actors and the, the narrative. And that eventually started to get on my nerves because, you know, I got the impression it's like, oh, these guys are really, like, fucking enjoying this. They're enjoying getting talk about themselves. You, you need to have a P-car character that seems like he doesn't care a whit <laughs> if a movie's being made about him not like with that type of guy i'm like yeah put him on the screen with the ones that like really want their 15 minutes it gets a little obnoxious so i didn't mind it but you know what i i wouldn't find it to be like an out there claim if someone said eh, i was really into it until you know we, we kind of took a time out I, I would understand that i also liked how 
they included uh, real footage of uh, Harvey Pekar on Letterman. I thought that was a really nice touch. And then when they kind of go back to it later on, it's Paul Giamatti and things start kind of blending. I, I guess I can see somebody, you're right, I agree with you. I can see somebody not quite enjoying that. But for whatever reason, uh, the, the film kind of gets away with it. It would be wrong-headed for, I think, telling the uh, the life of Harvey Pekar if you didn't have someone saying, ah, bullshit. At some point. And so you have him be the guy that's like, ah, this is bunch of nonsense like yeah like because you are trying to in some ways do the the, sort of the grand expose of small american life and i think (laughs) that direction would be very insulting to mr pekar and his work because there's i mean it's not a knock on the material he's created but i don't think he's looking for it to be elevated in that regard i think he you know, he wants to entertain. He through his own pain, he wants people to connect with the things that I guess are not being said in popular media, but that all of us go through, which is the the daily. You know, having someone that this nerd friend of his that at times really gets on Picar's fucking nerves, but he's also very defensive and protective of him because even though this guy's in a, a daily annoyance, at least through the work week. It's also part of his life. And so attacking that is like attacking Picard. It's attacking his world. So it's like, that's why, I mean, he has the, the final, like, sorry, I guess, blowout with, with Letterman and the, you know, MTV comes in and, you know, they, they just try to take from his, his life, anything that they can sell and package and then throw away, uh, is like a fad. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I also enjoy that his wife is not totally supportive. Like, in some ways, she doesn't really like this man whose art she respects being made to be a fucking joke. <laughs> but on the other hand, she's like, Harvey, uh, we got to sell some of these fucking dolls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got to make some money. <laughs> and you know, that's what the movie kind of was to Harvey Picar. He was just hoping, because he knows that he's not going to have enough of a salary from his retirement from as a file clerk to support his uh, daughter and uh, his wife and so the movie he was just hoping that the money he gets from this offers him uh, uh, more opportunities to write more stuff to get more uh, uh, music reviews or whatever political opinions that he can continue to make money off of and that's as much as he claims that he's this loser guy i don't know for me he always seems like the cool kid who didn't you know who doesn't need to be told that that he's cool and then you know in the film and, and for all the pessimism and, and misanthropic in the nature that he has the film ends with uh the retirement party and they're all hugging and it's like it, it's it's a warm ending that everyone would be surprised by uh, this character is getting but it, it oddly feels right it, it's just one of those films i was so happy that i had a similar reaction to it um, well, I guess not a similar, a similar rea- overall reaction, even though I'm coming at it from a very different uh, uh, version of myself. I'm glad that uh, <clears throat> you looked under the, I guess, American Splendor bed or in the American Splendor closet. And you're no longer scared of, <laughs> of, of Harvey Picar and what he's going to do to you <laughs> in, in you know, middle age. Uh, that It's strange to say only you would, <laughs> would look at this as like Harvey Picar. That's a young man's game. That's... Like, <laughs> you gotta put away that... that Crazy Picar when you become an adult. 
The American Splendor Movie The height of many Americans' ambition is to be involved with a movie in some capacity, most likely as an actor or an actress. Generally, the high point of their weekends is to go see a movie. To them, it's the highest form of art and entertainment. A fairly popular movie was based on my comic book stories, American Splendor, and I appeared in it, but I'm not all excited or worked up about it. I don't try to rank the various art forms in any order, and comics are the thing I do best and what I like to do the most. But I tell you what, you can make a lot more money in movies than you can in comics, and I respect them for that. I've always known that the money I made on my federal government retirement pension after 37 years as a file clerk would not be enough to support my family adequately. Since 1980, I've been trying to get people to base flicks off my comics so I could earn extra money in my old age. You approve of that, don't you? Yeah, in 1980, a big complimentary article came out about my comics in the Village Voice. It must have had some impact, because a short time later, Jonathan Demi called me to see if he could base a movie on my comics. However, he hadn't made a name yet and couldn't get the dough together to make the film. Then after that, a guy named Alan Sachs, who was one of the producers on the TV series Chico and the Man and Welcome Back Cotter wanted to do an American Splendor sitcom. But he couldn't find the dough either. See, even a low-budget film costs a couple million bucks to produce, a sum which few people can afford to throw away. Then, a guy who made videos wanted to produce video versions of my stories for Cable. He was good, but at the time, Cable wasn't paying very much, so I sat tight. I kept writing and publishing my autobiographical comics through the 80s, and some interesting things happened. Three theater groups, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., and another one in Hollywood, California, did plays based on American Splendor. They got a good critical reaction, too. Now, my comics are autobiographical. They dealt with my everyday life as a file clerk. I think that I and, well, just about everybody else lead lives interesting enough to do movies or novels about. Many are unsung heroes. They struggle mightily, sometimes working at jobs that they hate, just so their families can survive. There's a lot of humor that crops up in their lives, too, which is fresher and funnier than the stuff you see on television. In the 1990s, this L.A.-based movie art director, Bernd Capra, actually signed a couple of option agreements with me to do an American Splendor film. We tried everything we could to sell it. We both had connections to Leonardo DiCaprio, me through my acquaintance with his father, George, who was an excellent underground comics writer, and Bert actually had worked with Leonardo on the Gilbert Grape movie. So I went out to L.A. and George tried to sell an American Splendor movie to some Hollywood producers he knew, implying that Leonardo, who was really hot then, might appear in the flick. But that wasn't enough to get anybody to come up with the jack. Man... This was getting discouraging. The guy who played the lead in the American Splendor play in Hollywood was Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer Simpson, and Siobhan Fallon, a talented TV and movie comedian, was in it. The LA papers really dug the play too, but the movie people still didn't want to risk investing in it. Later on in the 90s, Burnt got some kind of connection with Rob Schneider, 
a good TV and movie comedian and they started talking up American Splendor as a showcase for Snyder's talent. But that was a slow developing project. Then in 1999, something positive happened. Dean Haspiel, the guy who'd done some illustration work for me, called. Dean told me a producer he was doing some freelance work for was really interested in doing an American Splendor movie. This producer, a guy named Ted Hope, was connected with a highly regarded independent film company, Good Machine, which had produced some of Ang Lee's best pictures. For some crazy reason, I didn't follow up on it immediately. But Dean called again and told my wife Joyce about it. She got right on it. We pretty much got an option agreement together in about five minutes. Originally, Ted Hope wanted me to write a script for an American Splendor movie, so I got into doing that. The script writing was more uh, episodic than the usual commercial motion picture story, so I didn't know how Ted would feel about that. Meanwhile, Ted Hope had gotten the idea, which he hadn't told me about, that he wanted me in the flick as well as an actor that played me. He told this to Bob Pulcini and Sherry Springer Bergman, a married couple who would direct the picture. Bob and Sherry not only agreed with Ted, but had some more far-out ideas about double casting. Anyway, I got paid for the work I'd done on the script. Then Bob and Sherry took it over and wrote a new script. It turned out to be great that they did. Meanwhile, things weren't going too well for me then on my day gig. I was having panic attacks every morning. Beginning on about June 2001, sometimes they had to take me to the doctor on the job. By that time, I'd put in almost 37 years working for the federal government, mostly for the VA hospital, and I was starting to think maybe it would be a good idea if I just retired. If I hung around any longer, I wouldn't get much more of my pension, and maybe the work was driving me nuts. Meanwhile, Ted Hope had been busy trying to get the bread to do American Splendor. He went to Maud Nadler, the vice president of movies at HBO, and Maud liked the script. She said, somehow we'll get this thing done. Well, I wasn't getting any better at work. The panic attack still came, so I decided to retire in October 2001. The next month, they were shooting the movie in Cleveland. Shooting the movie was a momentous time for me. I used to go down to the set all the time just to be around the action. I didn't watch them shooting much. I stayed out of the way. But I would kibitz with the cast and crew members who weren't busy. Sometimes I'd eat lunch with them. Thing was, even though they weren't using my script, they were using a lot of my stories and dialogue. People seemed to really dig them and admire me. I gotta be honest, this admiration was a rare thing for me, and I wanted to be around it. Finally, in December 2001, the shooting for the American Splendor movie was completed. Then, I really hit rock bottom. I had nowhere to go in the morning, my life had no shape or direction, I got way more depressed, and I had to be hospitalized for major depression. While I was at the hospital, I noticed a lump in my right groin, similar to the one I had on my left groin in 1990, which turned out to be lymphoma. So when I got out of the hospital for depression, I started chemotherapy treatments. The next year and a half were uh, a nightmare. I was in and out of the hospital a number of times for depression, for which I got treated with electric shock therapy as well as medication. The treatment was rough, and I became severely weakened by it, and 
lost all of my hair. If not for my wife's care, I don't know what I would have done. Things were moving right along with the post-production of American Splendor, though. In the summer of 2002, my family and I were flown to New York to see it. I dug it. But the combination of treatments for cancer and depression had really disoriented me, and some of the film was confusing to me. Shortly after this, I received a call from Ted Hope, telling me that the Toronto Film Festival wanted to present American Splendor. He wasn't going to get post-production work done on time to get it to them, but still, I was amazed and pleased that such a prestigious film festival was willing to accept it. Then I got another surprising call from Ted. He told me American Splendor had been selected for the Sundance Film Festival, and that there was enough time to get it ready. First Toronto, then Sundance. Man, if both of these festivals accepted it, maybe it wasn't a fluke. Maybe a whole lot of people out there will like American Splendor. What blew my mind was that my comic books had been selling so poorly for so long that, aside from excellent reviews, you know, which I still got, I expected no return from them. And here in this movie, which was based on my comic stories, had been accepted by two of the most prestigious film festivals in the world. Ah, well, maybe it didn't mean so much after all. The people who did the selecting for movies were probably also critics. And my stuff had always been well received by the critics. It was the broad masses I had to worry about. My wife, my kid, and I got a free trip to Park City, Utah, home of the Sundance Film Festival, courtesy of HBO. That might be therapeutic. I was still very depressed, and and at Sundance, maybe I'd get some R-E-S-B-E-C-T. We took a January flight out to Utah. The fellow next to me pointed out that in the aisle next to ours was Al Gore. I looked, and sure enough, it was Al. How did we happen to be on the same plane together? Anyhow, the plane landed in Salt Lake City, and from there we got a limo ride to Park City. Pretty posh. I was entering a new world temporarily. We were assigned a condo with a jacuzzi, and it was stocked with several days' worth of food. Plus, we had our own washing machine, in case an emergency arose. The next night, they showed American Splendor for the first time. There was a full house, something that gladdened my heart. Mass support. Man, it's wonderful. I saw American Splendor with a clear head this time around, and was very impressed with the job that Ted and Bob and Sherry, the whole cast and crew in fact, had done. The movie was not only done very well on a technical level, I realized that it was innovative. Bob and Sherry mixed different forms, documentary, narrative fiction, animation, still photos of cartoons. Inspired by the fact that I used a bunch of different cartoonists to draw me, Bob and Sherry also did some multiple casting. In addition to Paul Giamatti, I played myself, and a third actor played me in a theatrical performance of American Splendor, with Giamatti in the audience. Joyce was played by Hope Davis and herself, and there were other examples of multiple casting, which allowed viewers the opportunity to assess the characters from more than one standpoint. People were stopping me in the street to tell me how much they liked it, including some critics and movie professionals. I asked Bob if we could actually win a prize. He said he didn't know about the politics, but not to worry. We left before the prizes were given out, but I did watch them on TV, and when we got back to Cleveland, sure enough, the winner of the Sundance Dramatic Award, American Splendor. Oh my god, it won. It won! 
I can hardly believe it. I never thought I could ever be associated with winning a big award like this, even though a lot of people said they liked the flick. Man, the Sundance Award was one of the nicest things that ever happened to me. I had lost faith in people's willingness to give substantial support to anything I did. And after Sundance, the movie won more awards at Cannes, Edinburgh, New York, and Montreal. I got to thinking that maybe it was possible that people in large numbers could identify with my work, actually like it. So now, December 2003, and the season of the big publicized movie prizes is on us. Considering that no one connected with American Splendor is a big name, it got a shot at some and it actually has been nominated for a few so far, even made some of the top 10 lists. So people ask me, what advice do I have to give to movie makers so they too can get awards and uh, how has this experience changed my life? Man, my life is on hold right now. I picked up some extra gigs because of the movie's success, but what happens when that's over? Like I said, I'm not a movie maker. I'm a comics maker. Unless someone else contacts me to do more movie based on my work, that stuff is over. I guess the movie had a positive effect on sales on my comics because now my publisher is offering me a lot more bread to do comics for him. I'm also getting gigs writing prose articles, book reviews, record reviews, political pieces. But I'm so tense. How long will this last? Will I finally be able to make some decent money on comics to supplement my pension income? I gotta take care of my wife and kid. I can't really retire. I've got to do freelance writing from here on in. The question is, will the jobs keep coming? And if so, will I be able to get them fairly easily or have to beg for them? You ask me how to be successful in the movie business? How should I know? I was lucky enough to get involved with people like Ted Hope, Bob Bolcini, Sherry Springer Bergman, and Paul Giamatti. I only hope you're so lucky. <laughs>